Welcome everybody to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Um, we have a really interesting, I think very important show today, arguably the most important one maybe we've ever done. Um, True. It's very relevant, it's very pertinent to uh, free speech, free expression, the First Amendment. Uh, we're gonna be talking to the brother and the father of the one and only Julian Assange. Um, there's a lot I could say about that, but you know what, I'm gonna save it for the interview. We'll talk more about that in the yeah. interview. Um, but let's start with some news here first. So there's a lot of big stuff going on. Bill Cosby might be the biggest one, if, if, you, if you ask my opinion. Uh. Um, <laughs> so it's interesting, right? Because we, we got the news that Bill Cosby is being released. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court said, you gotta release him. And I think everybody's reaction was the same when they read it. It's like, wait, what? what? Like, yeah, <laughs> where do that you, even? That makes no sense. Like, what are you talking about? That's absurd. I didn't absurd. even know that that was a possibility. That's what I'm saying. Like, I didn't either. I was like, first of all, I didn't even know he was doing an appeal or whatever. I was just like, he's done so. He would, you know, he, it was 60 women or something. I'm like, in, in my, you know, naive mind, I thought. This is over. Yes. And I also thought like, out of the 60 women, maybe like four or five of them got him. You know what I mean? Like mm. it was a lawsuit with a bunch of them or whatever. Yeah. Turns out, no. So anyway, the specifics of the case are really interesting. So what happened is um, he was told by the district attorney in 2005, basically, listen, we're not going to come after you for this. So you may as well fess up. Now, he had paid three, about three, near $3.5 million, like $3.36 million. Right. Um, to the, the woman in one particular case. Yeah. And so he was told, listen, we're not going to come after you, so you may as well confess. And basically, Bill Cosby was like, okay, I did it. That's the gist of it. He basically was like, yeah, I did it. I used to slip quaaludes into drinks and mm -hmm. then have my way with women. Now, what happened was, years later, that information came up in the court case. A judge allowed that information to come up in the court case. But then you run into, you know, an ethical conundrum and a constitutional conundrum, a law conundrum, which is he was told that's not going to be used against you. Then they are using that against him. So does that violate his Fifth Amendment protection from incriminating himself? Right. Basically. Um, and, you know, we talked a little bit about this the other day, Crystal. And I have to tell you, I'm still torn on it. And let me explain why. So... There's this thing called um, jury nullification. And the idea of jury nullification is like, even if somebody is caught stone cold guilty on something, great example, somebody stealing medicine from the pharmacy because their mother has cancer or something. Yeah. They steal it, they help their mother, uh, and that gets in front of a jury. Technically, that person broke the law. They clearly broke the law. But the jury could say, we know that, we don't really care because common sense is going to step in now and we're going to say... We, we don't care this person's going to be set free because we don't care that they broke the law. It was still like the more moral thing to do or the ethical thing to do. We understand it. It's kind it. of a check on prosecutorial overreach. That's too. right. So, yeah. but then that got me thinking, okay, so when you go through this case, if you're the judge, you see very clearly, it, yeah, you can make a case as constitutional rights were violated, but cops are allowed to use trickery and deceit to get a confession from somebody. They're not allowed to be coercive, so they can't like torture you to get something yeah. out of you, but they're allowed to lie to you. They're allowed to use trickery and deceit. So I don't understand why a judge can't look at this set of facts and the judge be like, you know what? Technically, yeah, maybe there was a, a problem here, but we know, he, we know he did it. Not only did he confess in this instance, he also confessed on fucking Larry King in like the early 1990s when right. he said, I slip women Spanish fly and I fucking have my way with them. Right. So I look at that and I go, I'm just torn on the case because, yes, if you go by the letter of the law, he's got to be let go because his rights were violated. But if you go by the spirit of the law, the bigger 
violation of rights was when he fucking raped 60 women or whatever it was right. and the actually bringing about justice would be having him behind bars so so there's there's zero doubt there's a lot to say about this first of all there's zero doubt that it's a moral outrage like putting the technicalities of the law right, aside yeah. what he obviously did. the fact that he got away with raping women over decades was protected in america because he's a wealthy and famous man is a societal failure and is also a legal failure and it is a complete outrage even the fact that he was able to go free so long until it was like what 2014 2015 2016 before he ultimately paid any kind of a, a price in terms of the criminal justice system and then it was because a comedian dared to say Burris, yeah. what everybody basically knew this motherfucker that a Bill Cosby's a rapist <laughs> yeah. and then suddenly you have women after you know being able to come out and say yes this happened to me yes this happened to me yes this happened to me so because he was protected for so long over decades you had only one case where the statute of limitations had not run. That's right. And so one question you could say is, you know, some crimes don't have a statute of limitations on them. Perhaps rape should be one of right? them. That's yeah. an open question. That's a great right? point. So statute of limitations had almost expired too on this one. I believe they filed the case like within days mm -hmm. of when the statute of limitations is supposed to expire. So like you were saying, the prosecutor, um, that district attorney had promised him that you will not be criminally charged in this case. And that was done in conjunction with a civil suit where you're right, ultimately he came to a settlement and paid $3 million plus dollars to this woman. And so because he had been promised, we're not gonna go after you criminally, he then didn't have any right to, you know, against self-incrimination. So he testifies honestly about drugging women with quaaludes that's used against him in the trial. And that's why this Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Supreme Court Five, by the way, overwhelming was six to one in this decision, ultimately vacated his conviction. Now, there's another piece of this that not being a legal scholar, I can only tepidly weigh in on. There was dissent among three of the justices, I believe, on the ultimate remedy. So they decided not only is this conviction vacated, but also we can't have a retrial. That part I have a question about, because it's possible that in a retrial, if you disallow that uh, testimony that he brought forward in the civil case with the understanding that I'm not going to be prosecuted, if you disallow that, it's possible you could secure another conviction in this case if it was allowed to be retried. But they said, nope, that's off the table. That part I'm less I'm less certain of. It's double jeopardy, right? That's what they're saying? Like, you can't try him for the same thing twice? Is that the idea? It's not double jeopardy. It's not double it's, jeopardy? It's that a civil suit and criminal suit, two different things, right. right? So in the civil case, and again, I'm not a lawyer, guys, so <laughs> this is all based on, you know, my reading and my knowledge from the, the articles that I've been um, trying to educate myself with, but this is about his right to due process. And just like when you make a plea deal with the prosecutor, if you make a plea deal that says like, I'm gonna cooperate with you on X and I'm gonna get a reduced sentence or mm -hmm. I'm not gonna be charged in X or Y or Z case. What the Supreme Court has ruled is even if it's not an official plea deal, if you make a bargain with the prosecutor, like Cosby did in this case and secured this promise that I'm not gonna charge you criminally, that still has legal force. And that still pr provides you with those protections that you've been promised if you're understanding in good faith that that's what the lay of the land is. So on this narrow legal question, the best that I can see is that it was technically decided correctly. Again, 
That doesn't mean this isn't a moral outrage. Rage. That doesn't mean the legal system didn't fail in a million other ways. That doesn't mean that the outcome wouldn't be completely different if he wasn't a wealthy and famous man with the best lawyers available to him. But on this technical question, I believe very strongly as, you know, a civil libertarian in people's constitutional rights being protected. And that means they have to be guaranteed and protected, even in the case of an absolute monster like Bill Cosby. So there's a bunch of things I want to say in response to yeah. that. So first of all, it is mighty, mighty convenient that whenever the Constitution is applied literally or whenever it's like ignored completely, in all those instances, the end result is always more injustice. So, you know, think about it. We do torture. That violates people's protection from cruel and unusual punishment. That's your yeah. Eighth Amendment protections. Uh, you know, Obama, Bush, they suspended due process and habeas corpus. We, you know, there's a million ways in which even like the, the anti-BDS laws or um, the laws in over 30 Republican states where they're doing anti-protest laws, which is deeply against the First Amendment. Right. It's weird that in many instances, people get away with violating the Constitution like that and it's towards more injustice. Here we have an instance where they're applying the Constitution correctly, as you pointed out. But it's again, the end result is more injustice. But so the it's remedy, so selective in how. Yes. A hundred percent. Exactly. Two tiers of so that's just no annoying. doubt about it. Yeah. But the remedy to that is for the constitutional protections to be applied consistently in every case. So I agree. Not to say they weren't applied over here, so we no, also no. should and, strip them okay. over there. I agree with you. Yeah. Okay. And again, I, I don't think there's much disagreement on the technical aspect of this, that it was decided correctly. Um, I think that's a perfectly fair reading of the situation. And I think that's why it was so overwhelming that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court came to that decision. Yeah. However, I still don't, I haven't heard any convincing response to those two points I brought up which is if people agree with the idea that police can use trickery and deceit to get a, a confession, and maybe people, some people won't agree with that, and that's I mean, fine. I that, don't think that they should be able okay, to do so that, then but we know that, that it is done all okay, the time. But, sure. uh, so that would be your position then. I'm actually fine with them being able to use trickery and deceit to get a confession. Seriously, you, and they use, do this all the time. You bring in two people, both of them were implicated in a crime. You, you lie to one of them and say, your buddy's squealing on you right now, so you better talk on him, and then they do. And, yeah. and then you actually get people who are guilty in many instances. So if people are okay, and I get you're not, but if, if people accept the fact that police can use trickery and deceit to get a confession, I don't see in principle how that's different from a prosecutor being able to use trickery and deceit to get a confession. Well, so, I mean, the, the problem is that there, you know, are specific legal protections here in place. And it's and the self-incrimination, so, the protection from self-incrimination, correct? Yes. And again, if you are, so... If a prosecutor was allowed to just lie to you and be like, giving you a sweetheart deal and we're going to reduce your sentence and all you have to do is cooperate and we're not going to charge you down the road, then no one is going to work with, if they're just allowed to lie about that and make shit up, no one is going to ultimately work with the DA, work with these prosecutors, take these plea deals because they will have no no legal recourse if ultimately they're like, kidding, just kidding. I, know, I, think, that's, I think that's a perfectly so, fair point. So what the Supreme Court has ruled is it doesn't have to technically be a plea deal. It can also just be a Word promise which was made. By the way, weird fact in this case, the DA that we're talking about is the same guy. Remember that clownish Trump yes, impeachment, impeachment lawyer? Do, yeah. mm -hmm. It's the same dude. Fucking idiot. This guy's a, um, a total idiot. The other thing that I, I wanted to respond to your question about jury nullification versus judge nullification or whatever. Um, so I served actually on a grand jury in New York and, um, you will not surprise you to learn that I took like a relatively radical approach <laughs> to and, these things while I was on the that. grand jury. 
and, you know, worked with my colleagues on the jury to try to combat what I saw as certain prosecutorial overreach, things like, you know, people who stole diapers for their baby. I was like, I'm not going to, we're not going to go after, we're not going to indict these people for this incredibly desperate and low-level crime. Right. Um, there was another instance of um, someone who's experiencing homelessness and got arrested for like, you know, had a, a small amount of drugs on their person at a subway stop or something like that. It, those yep. types of things, it was like, no. Like, they right. may have technically broken the law, but you don't we care. are not going to yeah. indict on these issues. common sense overrode it. You were like, I don't care that they technically broke the law. I don't think right. what they did was wrong. So I'm going to say no. So I would say that it's very different in the situation of you have, you know, a jury of a number of people coming to a unanimous agreement in a democratic process in either on one case or in the case of a, you know, a grand jury that may be impaneled for a time, very limited number of cases, that is a very different exercise of power versus a judge or a Supreme Court justice who's put on there for life. I don't want them just freelancing and doing whatever the hell they want, whether it's like letting Wall Street crooks off the hook or oil barons off the hook or whatever it may be. That is handing one individual way too much power to just unilaterally create the law as they think it should exist. Judges already have a lot of discretion, especially in terms of sentencing. That means that the same crime in certain places are gonna, is going to be handled wildly differently depending on what judge you happen to get and what jurisdiction you happen to be. And so they already have tremendous power. I would not want to hand them the additional power of just being able to like unilaterally decide what the law should be depending on what serves them. I think, you know, you may have examples like this where we would like to see that done. But if you look at the totality of cases, I want the law to be applied as it is democratically, you know, decided that the law and the regulation should ultimately be. But I think you're being selective here because you're arguing, well, hey, since judges can be irrational, they shouldn't have that power. I might agree with that, but judges can also be rational. And judges could also at times invoke common sense when the law is not is giving, abiding by common sense. This is giving sense. the judge the, the power of a king. But hold on. As an hold individual on. Wait, 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 wait. person. But hold on, hold on. Even if I agree with everything you said, mm -hmm. you have to concede that it's the same thing in principle as your jury nullification thing. Because mm -hmm. what you I don't said. Agree. Wait, hold on. Yeah. Because the idea was this is at the core of what you did when you did jury nullification. I'm going to do the right thing. I don't care what the law says. So a judge could look at this and say, the bigger injustice was him raping 60 women, and we know he did it because he confessed to it multiple times. So since that's the bigger injustice, I don't care what the law says because it's a lesser injustice that he was lied to to get the confession. But that's not for an individual judge to decide. That's for society to look at a case like this and say, this is a moral outrage. Perhaps we should get rid of the statute of limitations on rape. Perhaps as a society, we need to handle this in a different way. Perhaps we need to change the Agreed, laws around this. So rather that than post hoc, though, on, you can't get rather than rather than having one individual judge have the power of a king or a queen. These laws are supposed to be decided on as a society. I do think it is a wildly different situation when you're talking about a group of regular citizens who were working on one case and have to come democratically to a unanimous agreement on this. That to me is a totally different power dynamic than um, you know, a judge just being able to, to freelance and do whatever the hell they so want. The that biggest... would be a very scary state so of hold affairs on, hold on. if every judge could just like 
get rid of the law and do whatever they want, then there's no point in even having a law because you're just letting judges like decide however they want. But but OK, so let's say it was a panel of judges then. That's the same number of people as the jury. You still have, though, a lifetime appointment. So you have this power enshrined where, again, I know, but, you're but saying... again, you may you may as well not even have law in that case because you've just like handed it over to and judges. You do whatever you want. Now, in certain cases, obviously, when we see with the Supreme Court, the way that they already have a lot of power and how they interpret and they can come to decisions that seem to be wildly unconstitutional, but at least it's somewhat bound by the Constitution and the letter of the law. What you're describing, I get everything you're saying. Yeah. But under what you're describing, Bill Cosby gets off. Correct. Yeah. That's the first point. Second point is you are saying if it's a judge, even if it's a panel of judges, that's the same number of a jury. They have to and should follow the letter of the law. But if I'm on a jury, I can decide to override the law. And that's perfectly moral. You don't see that that's selective. I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm just saying you're being very selective. In, no, I don't, you, you don't see it as selective. No, it's don't, the I mean, same I, thing in principle. I don't see it as the same thing in principle because I see the, the power dynamic. Uh, as being wildly different. You have a, a jury that, you know, has to come to through a democratic process. They have very limited power. They're just looking at this one particular case versus a judge that's impaneled for, that's there for life. So I think it is, to me, it's very clearly different. Am I outraged that Bill Cosby is that? Like, I don't want him to act like I'm, you know, I feel like I'm being put in the position where I'm like defending Bill Cosby, which is the polar opposite. And again, I think the both the legal system and society failed over decades and made it so that the only woman whose statute of limitations had not expired was this one instance where you have a prosecutor who behaved in, an, in a totally idiotic fashion, giving this blanket um, immunity essentially to Bill Cosby. But you have to, with something like this, I mean, you have to, you have to protect the rights even of the most monstrous person. Otherwise, those rights won't be available when it is someone who is genuinely wronged and deserves to have those protections. So I'm a relative hardliner on, yeah, I believe in the constitutional rights of defendants, even when they do bad things, even when they're, you know, notoriously monstrous people. And so you have to apply it even in the situation when it leads to a truly horrendous outcome, which yeah, this is. OK, but on that, you're saying I need we need to apply the law literally in this instance. But in this other instance, I don't want to apply it literally. I don't care if she stole diapers. If you're applying the law literally in that instance, yes, go to prison for stealing diapers. You're saying very literal over here, not literal at all over here. Well, I'm saying over here, there's a check that makes sense to me. OK, in jury nullification. And with just handing judges like unilateral power, I, I just all don't right. agree. with. Well, my whatsoever. final word on this is yeah. very simple. Ultimately, the conversation that I think we're having, we're ha actually we're having slightly different conversations, but the conversation I'm trying to have is letter of the law versus spirit of the law. And the reason why it's hard to come to any sort of conclusion on this is because people have been debating this for centuries, where do you follow the letter of the law no matter where it takes you, even if it's absurd, or do you follow the spirit of the law, which is it's hard to sort of codify everything perfectly so you never miss anything. And there are instances where the spirit of the law seems like the better thing to do. So it's again, it's a conversation of principle versus consequentialism. If you follow the principle and it puts you in a terrible place, do you abandon the principle and then just do the thing that that would have the better consequences? Mm, right. So we're never going to really, uh, you know, come to this conclusion. I just want to say I actually don't know how I feel about this. People mm. might think I'm, I'm hard line like lock Cosby up. The reason I'm pressing you on this is because you're just a lot more certain than I am yeah. that they did the right thing. Right. Well, and I think there's another distinction that needs to, needs to be made about who is put in the position to decide whether you are going with the letter of the law or the spirit of the law. 
And I feel completely differently about whether it's, you know, a judge who's pretty much unaccountable, who has power for life, um, being able to just do whatever they want versus uh, a jury that is impaneled either, either just for that case or for a limited number of cases that has to democratically decide. So I think that that distinction matters a lot. I think it matters. I don't think it matters nearly as much as you think it does, but that's obvious in the course of this conversation. Anyway, now that we've spent 87 minutes debating talk, Bill Cosby. Should we talk about another wonderful human being? <laughs> sure, go ahead. Set everybody up on this man who passed away. Donald Rumsfeld died this week. Um, the Onion, I think, had maybe the best uh, and most accurate headline about it, which was weapon of mass destruction found dead at age 88. So um, this always brings up, I, I also want to note um, another truly great American, Mike Gravel, also passed away within the past week. And it was really, really noteworthy the way that those two deaths were handled by the press. Gravel, uh, who is, you know, I certainly feel is an American hero because he took the very courageous act of reading the Pentagon Papers into the congressional record at a time where that really required a lot of courage and helped to expose um, government abuses and just the like evil of the incredibly bureaucratic way that they prosecuted the Vietnam War. Press goes out of their way to paint him as like a gadfly. They described him as having a... a a flair for the theatrical and being, you know, a loner. I mean, they just basically went out of their way to paint Mike Ravel as some weirdo rather than focusing on the incredible moral clarity and courage that he truly had in his contribution mm -hmm. to society. On the other hand, with Donald Rumsfeld, they seem to go out of their way to do the exact opposite. To be fair, Daily Beast did a good headline. They were basically like, war criminal dies. He killed like 400,000 yeah. people. <laughs> I'm and I'm talking about here, New York Times. So yeah, I'll yeah, give yeah. you the, the, the worst. New York Times. Respectability you know, politics, New York Times. Yeah. By the way, um, Katie Halper pointed this out. I didn't notice this. The guy who wrote the Mike Gravel obit for, I think it was the New York Times, actually died two, three years ago. So they had this pre-written... And they didn't even like, I mean, they're not even hiding the fact that they just had this thing in the can You're ready just to go. To croak. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So, which is just incredibly. When I see Chomsky's well. obituary, by the way, when that day comes, I might actually have an aneurysm because <laughs> there's no way they're going to be fair to him. I'm sorry. About that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so here's the Mike Ravel. This is both from the New York Times. Mike Gravel, unconventional two-term Alaska senator, dies at 91. The subhead is he made headlines by fighting for an oil pipeline and reading the Pentagon Papers aloud. After 25 years of obscurity, he reemerged with a quixotic presidential campaign. So all kinds of editorializing there that if you don't know anything about Mike Gravel, you just come away with the impression like, yeah, some fringe gadfly character. I think Washington Post actually used the word gadfly in there. That word annoys the shit out of me, and I don't know why. Well, it's annoying because it's used to paint I mean, people like Bernie Sanders, too. I mean, he can't just be dismissed as a gadfly anymore. But prior to his presidential runs and how successful he was at that, that's exactly the way he was painted. Anyone who goes against the establishment and takes, you know, the morally courageous, like, 99 to 1 vote, they paint as a fringe character and a gadfly rather than dealing with the substance. But even, even the literal writing. word, though, to just, just, it's just the like sound weird... annoys me. Yeah. yeah. Like, why did we make that word? Fuck that word. I'm sorry. Okay. So compare that, the <laughs> gadfly-esque um, obit headline for Gravel to New York Times again. Donald Rumsfeld had the distinction oh. of being the only defense chief to serve two non-consecutive terms. 
75 to 77 under Gerald Ford, and 2001 to 2006 under George W. Bush. He also was the youngest at 43 and the oldest at 74 to hold the post. Yeah. Now, if you were going to editorialize and paint someone in a negative light, don't you think it would be the war criminal Rumsfeld who is responsible for hundreds, at least in part, responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths, torture, Abu Ghraib, all of that stuff. Yeah. It's really something. Yes, it is. He's the statesman and Gravel's the, the gadfly. Yes. And it just shows you the establishment media group think, which is so grotesque. There's not an independent thinker among them because Mike Gravel was a very plain spoken man. And you go back and you watch those debates in 2008. Oh, and he was basically like, you're all fucking crazy. You're a warmonger. You're a warmonger. You're a warmonger. Uh, watch what's going to happen. And then, of course, he was proven right. Obama gets in there, continues the wars. Biden's in there now, continues the wars. Um, so the guy was right. You know, there's no recognition that he was right. And it's downplay him and play up this guy who's a war criminal. Again, to be fair, there were some outlets that were like, fuck Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. But um, it's not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. But this gets into the conversation that we always have when somebody passes away, which is uh, what's the what's the proper ethics around how you discuss it when somebody dies? And I will say, so normally everybody knows I'm kind of a softy on this this front. I do think that I think the taboo towards death is actually reasonable. Mm. Like, I think it's an act. It's a good taboo to have. I think we should check on people. I think we should value life, even life that perhaps uh, hasn't necessarily shown itself to be all that great. But I will say this. Uh, when people with shitty opinions die and then I see people celebrating it, I'm like, really, it's just shitty opinions. They could have shitty opinions, but be a wonderful person in other respects, love their family, take care of their kids, donate to charity, whatever. Mm -hmm. Like that's possible. And so when I see people talk shit about somebody who died and they just had bad politics, I'm like, sort of fuck you. Cause you might even be a worse person just for dancing on their grave than they were for having shitty opinions. But I will say, I don't really feel the same way when it's a war criminal or a torturer who dies. Like, I sort of get it. Like, I, when I see people, like, tap dancing on Rumsfeld's grave, mm -hmm. I'm like, listen, tap dancing on graves is just not my thing in general, but, like, you do you. I can't really be that mad about it because the dude did cause so much harm and pain and suffering in a real, tangible, measurable way yes. that shitty opinions doesn't necessarily have that effect. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is, this is a, a step up from that. And, I mean... When it comes to Dick Cheney, when Dick Cheney's day comes, I will be fighting back the urge to be one of those people who's, you know, who's actively cartwheels in the streets. You know what I mean? Yeah. So so what do you think about that? I know you're probably less of a hardliner on this than I am in terms um, of I, uh, respecting. Uh, well, here's what I think. And actually, we the person we talked to about this was, was Glenn. Glenn. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought he had a really I thought he had a really thoughtful philosophy on it. Um, my basic view is that I'm not personally going to like celebrate anyone's death, really. Um, and I don't really think celebrating someone's death is right. What I do think is right and that we should not shy away from is accurately painting the portrait of the, especially for a public person, of the consequential acts of their life and what the impact of those acts were. Totally agree. Because... Here in the case of Rumsfeld, like this is going to be basically kind of the last of what anybody hears about or learns about or knows about right. Donald Rumsfeld. And we're both old enough that the Iraq War and all of that era was extraordinarily um, formative. It's something that will that the unconscionable acts of that era are seared into my brain, into my political philosophy. But that's not the case for everyone. So it's very important to me 
that in this final moment of public awareness, the record is portrayed accurately. That doesn't mean you have to go over the top. That doesn't mean you have to like overly editorialize. For me, the acts of Donald Rumsfeld certainly speak for themselves. Now, am I going to be like super mad at people that are actively celebrating? No, I'm not going to be super mad, but that's not for me. And I think in general, the right way to approach it is just through accuracy. And oftentimes there's an instinct people have to kind of whitewash, to look for the good. If it's a private citizen, I'm actually totally good with that and that's fine with me and, and I understand it. But somebody who's a public figure and had such consequential acts for like the lives and suffering of human beings, that needs to be portrayed in a totally unvarnished and accurate way in the moment of their death. And not like, a, well, we'll wait and talk about that tomorrow because this basically, this is it to talk about this person. So I agree with most of what you said there. Yeah. yeah. For the facts have to come first. You have to accurately discuss what yeah. this guy did, what his legacy is. The thing about Rumsfeld, he's just such a great example of with zero editorializing, you can paint the correct picture of him. Mm, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like you don't have to give any opinion. You don't, like everything could just be dry and factual and somebody will read it and be like, this guy had a terribly negative effect on the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I agree with you on that. Of course, the facts always come first. I'm not saying you bend reality, you know? Oh, yeah. Um, no, I know. But I will say, and, and this is not as much about Rumsfeld as much as about the conversation in general, like how do you react when bad people die? Um, as a general rule, I like to not take pleasure in other people's pain because I think people don't realize that that says something about you too. Mm. You know what I mean? Like everybody thinks they're the ultimate arbiter and they're the most objective. And so when something happens, I decree X, Y, or Z is the right way to feel. And it's like, okay, but... So let's downgrade it again. You got Donald Rumsfeld. Downgrade that a little bit. Rush Limbaugh, the worst of the worst with all the terrible opinions in the world, but he passes away. He wasn't a war criminal. He just cheered on war criminals. But let's go one step more removed from that. Somebody who's, you know, uh, a centristy establishment media mm. figure, they pass away. And, you know, I probably fucking hate them on all the political stuff. But if I celebrate that person's death, yeah. is that like, am I a good person if I do that? Does that... I feel like people don't understand that that also says something about you, that the, the lefty position is always the humanitarian position. And to be humanitarian means to like, no, across the board, generally, I want to try to be fair and not take pleasure in anybody's pain. And it, it also feels dangerously close to me to like, uh, forget war criminal aside, because he's a war criminal, so fuck him in the case of Rumsfeld. <laughs> but like, um, for people who just have shitty opinions, it's very close to like, well, let's say that person got locked up for bullshit reasons, mm. right? Would people who, would people be like, cool, cause fuck them, they have terrible opinions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. it's, it's dangerously close to that. Like I'm, I'm fine with bad things happening to bad people. Right. You know what I mean? Uh, so if somebody, it, if Rush Limbaugh uh, was rejected from a hospital when he had cancer, he went to go get his cancer treatment, but right. there are a bunch, of, a bunch of liberals or lefties running it, and we're like, we don't fucking like this guy, get out. Would there be people who are like, I like that. That's good. Uh, absolutely. Uh, there there would, be. would be. And see, that's where I'm like, you're also a shitty person if you do that shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. Am I wrong? Am I too too much of a softie here? No, I don't think so. Okay. Because it's about like, what's the principle involved? Right. Yeah. And how would you want it applied across the board? And that's different from like the judgment of the the legacy of that person right. and what they've wrought. And it's it's hard because some of these Rumsfeld is like an extraordinarily black and white case. Fuck like Rumsfeld. Yeah. There's numbers him. to back it up. Yeah. No, no, no. Right. It's, all it's the facts very, say he's it's bad. Very, just like there's no state, editorializing. State the factual record. And that's like every it's clear. Right. Yeah. The record is clear. 
Rush Limbaugh, it's still pretty clear, it's clear because yeah. he had clear. <laughs> very negative effect yeah, on terrible. our politics. It was terrible, mm -hmm. like brainwashed an entire generation of boomers, you know, the impacts of which we're still living with to this day and will for decades to come. But then you start getting into like, you know, the next Joe Scarborough, the next right? commentator like down yeah, the list, right? going down, where yeah. it just becomes it, it becomes harder and harder to quantify. And then so what you're saying is then you kind of have to editorialize or interpret or yep. analyze mm -hmm. at least some of the legacy to give an accurate portrayal of what this person's impact was. And it's going to be very subject to debate. So, yeah, it's not an easy one. You know whose opinion I would really like to know on this Who? issue is um, Cornell West. Because he just approaches. That's true, yeah. He loves everybody, right. He loves, he's he's like, you know, living embodiment of hate the sin and love the yep. sinner, right? And he just has this full heart full of love, which is something we talked to, to him about when we got the chance to interview him. But also fierce moral clarity. Yes, Fierce right, moral yeah. clarity. So, um, and, you know, as a, as a religious scholar, I would love to know his thoughts on the topic because I bet they'd be useful and insightful as I, well. I agree. And again, look to see what he's said about Rumsfeld, if anything. Well, I was going to say with Rumsfeld, it's actually uh, like everybody knows I'm a softie on this issue. I do think the taboo around life is good. I think generally you shouldn't take pleasure in other people's pain. But when it, you, when it gets to war criminals, even I'm like, yeah, like I'm, I won't, <laughs> I won't tap dance on anybody's grave, but if y'all want to do it. It is what it is. Maybe maybe you shouldn't have been a fucking war criminal. How about that? <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> you if you weren't choice. a war criminal, this wouldn't happen. So Indeed. Um, all right. This is extraordinary revelations coming out about Exxon, the way they actually operate. It's probably not going to be surprising to you guys, but this was all recorded and caught on video. And just to see it spelled out so blatantly is quite something. And also specifically the way in which they've worked to undermine any sort of climate change provisions within Biden's infrastructure plan. So what happened here is an activist with Greenpeace UK set up sort of a sting of an Exxon lobbyist and tricked him into thinking that he was going to some like job interview and asked him all these questions about like, oh, so what do you really do over there at Exxon? And then provided that video to a um, UK news outlet. And now that's been made public. And some of the commentary here is quite extraordinary. Uh, for one, Exxon has made a big public show in recent years of being in favor of a carbon tax. And what this guy basically admits is that um, yeah, we back that because we know it's never going to pass. So this is no threat to us whatsoever. Here's his direct quote. Nobody is going to propose a tax on all Americans. And the cynical side of me says, yeah, we kind of know that. But it gives us a talking point that we can say, well, what is ExxonMobil for? We're for a carbon tax. Um, he also talks about how they approach members of Congress and lists off 10 different members in particular that they have used to undermine the ongoing infrastructure talks in terms of any climate change provisions. Let me read you that list of shame. Joe Manchin, Shelley Moore Capito, the Republican from West Virginia, um, also John Tester, Democrat, Maggie Hassan, Democrat, uh, uh, Mark Kelly, and Chris Coons, uh, all Democrats there, also brags about having ease of access to Cedric Richmond, director of the oh White House God. Office of Public Engagement, and also Gina McCarthy, who's Biden's top climate advisor. Richmond, just so you guys know, when he was in Congress, the district he represented, 
um, is known as Cancer Alley because the incidence of cancer in that district, which is mostly poor and mostly black, is extraordinarily higher than the national norm. Why? Well, in part because he took a, a lot. Well, I don't want to put this all on him, but just so happens that um, Congressman Richmond, when he was in Congress, took a lot of money from uh, chemical makers, certainly from the oil and gas industry. And so that region is extremely polluted. So makes sense that he would have these kinds of industry ties. They talk about working with shadow groups um, to try to, you know, undermine this. And what they did with the infrastructure bill is also very telling because rather than going after the climate change provisions in particular, what they did is they argued against the pay-fors so that knowing that uh, Biden was committed to like, we're not, we're, this is going to be revenue neutral, deficit neutral. So if you go after the pay-fors, then you know that the price tag of the bill is going to come way down. And if you're just talking about roads and bridges, well, then that's no threat ultimately to ExxonMobil. So all of that revealed in these tapes. Yeah. You know, it's kind of amazing because with a story like this, you're reminded of just how insanely right we've been about everything all along. Where I, you know, you always feel like, wait, am I, am I the crazy one? Am I the one who's not being accurate here? Yeah. Am I the one who's not, you know, nailing it with my worldview and how I dissect what's going on? And no, the fact of the matter is, if anything, it's even worse than I thought. You know, it's yes. This is a clear example of the donors directly controlling the politicians in a way that sort of is like smoke-filled backroom nefarious. Whereas yeah. previously. I probably would have made the argument that um, it, it's it's more unspoken. There's less of a direct quid pro quo and more of a like everything is implied. ExxonMobil gives your campaign money or Goldman Sachs gives your campaign money or Raytheon gives your campaign money. And it's like, hey, dog, I know what my job is. I'm on it. You don't have to say Dickie McGee's axe. I get right, it. Right. This is an example of like, it's even nah, more they might literally be like, let me call my congressperson who I bought and be like, by the way, here's what we're going to do. Yes, yes, exactly right. And there's another quote here. I was looking for the numbers of what Biden originally proposed versus what is now in the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And I mean, it just like the cuts in terms of electric vehicles way down. Everything related to climate change was more or less stripped down of this bill in some silly effort to get these um, Republicans <laughs> to agree to something bipartisan for no reason. Deal. Bipartisan right. deal. When, again, Fuck like, out of here. You have control of <laughs> the House and the Senate government. and the White House. It's just the dumbest Do thing I've ever what seen. what is required. Life. But you, we now see why... So we've been, I mean, we've all been kind of scratching out, like, why are you doing this? And this is partly why, because you've got these actors like ExxonMobil behind the scenes trying to push them in this direction. Okay, if we can just get it down to roads and bridges, this is going to say, this is one of the quotes here is actually, it says it'll save ExxonMobil about a billion dollars if we can get it down. And by the way, they also, uh, in this, these leaked tapes, they talk about all the various Trump era policy wins on trade permits and the corporate tax reduction, which was also probably worth billions to Exxon. Here's a direct quote from this lobbyist. He says, did we aggressively fight against some of the science on climate change? Yes. Did we hide our science? Absolutely not. Did we join some of these shadow groups to work against some of the early efforts? Yes, that's true. But there's nothing illegal about that. We were looking out for our investments. We were looking out for our shareholders. See, that's, that's the shit right there. See, that's what drives me crazy is like, because it's true. There's so many examples. You see this with that ProPublica billionaire tax, uh, you mm -hmm. know, release information. Mm -hmm. That was amazing where they were like, 
yeah, technically what their true tax rate is is like 0.1% or Bloomberg's was as high as 3.5%. That's their true tax rate. But effectively, the way that they went about getting to that was perfectly legal. It's just like they exploited the giant loopholes in the system. And that's exactly what they're saying here, too. Like, hey, you know, this is the way it works. And, and honestly, that's the biggest problem, Crystal, is that these people are so corrupt. They don't even see it that way. They right. just think this is how Washington this works. This is the way it's done. This is the way it's done. Yeah. Exactly. So Biden thinks nothing of like, well, go ahead. Let the lobbyists take a crack at what the bill's supposed to be. And then I'll, I'll weigh, you know, their interests and I'll decide what the bill's going to look like. It's like, no, you're not supposed to. It's supposed to be you guys are representing the people and then you guys make a deal, meaning the politicians. Having big money lobbyists step in and start controlling the process. That's some shit that like, honestly, and this is where my tough on crime side comes out. That shit should be up there with the top offenses that you can think of. Yeah. Corruption should be treated on the same level as, like, fucking murder or assault or some shit. Yes, yes, I completely agree. And instead, we know, I mean, these billionaires, for example, like, some of the tax evasion they engage in is legal loopholes, and some of it is just outright theft and fraud. That's right. Um, so... And that is, they have very little in the way of IRS enforcement. You're much likely to be audited if you're someone who's like a working class person versus a billionaire. Why? Because they can hire expensive lawyers and they can make this all a lot more complicated. It takes a lot more time and a lot more money and IRS resources. So it's, yeah, this is an incredible window into the way that government actually works. And it's even more disgusting than what you might have thought. And oh, by the way, when Joe Manchin is out there pretending like, oh, I'm just doing what's in the best interest of West Virginians. And it just so happens that, you know, I'm in this conservative state and Bullshit. that's why I act this way. No, no, no. This shit right here, that's why you act the way that you do. It has nothing to do with what West Virginians want or need or are pressuring you for. The people who are pressuring you and who you are listening to are not the constituents of West Virginia, who, by the way, would overwhelmingly benefit from having new jobs um, in a state where the coal industry just continues to decline and decline uh, and is very you know, economically exploited over the past century. No, you're not listening to them. You are listening to people like this asshole, the ExxonMobil lobbyist. If Joe Manchin actually was representing the people of West Virginia, he would be socially more conservative. So he would be like pro-gun, probably anti-choice. Yes. But on the economic stuff, we've seen it's like 70 or 80 percent of people in West Virginia want that $15 minimum wage. They love the stimulus checks. I mean, they're pro-union. So he would be a hell of a lot further left economically. But he's not because, again, like you said, he's not actually representing the people of West Virginia. He's not a West Virginia Democrat. He's an Exxon Democrat. Yes. And while we're uh, on the topic of multiple tiers of justice in this country, I just do want to note that um, Brittany's petition to have her father removed from her conservatorship was denied. So Bill Cosby getting a sweet deal with the legal system and Britney Spears continuing to be screwed over. Bill Cosby is free. Julian Assange is not. And Britney Spears is not. Yes. And that brings us to um, an interview that both of us are very, very excited to bring you. Um, we have here in D.C. this week, Julian Assange's brother uh, and his father, Gabriel Shipton and John Shipton. They've been engaged in a cross-country tour trying to raise awareness, trying to get this prosecution against Julian, which is, you know, an attack on him personally, but also an attack on the very institution of freedom of the press, free speech, First Amendment that impacts every single one of us. Very pleased to bring you John and Gabriel Shipton. John and Gabriel, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you so much for taking the time. 
A pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Um, John, if you could start by just telling us, what do we know right now about how Julian is doing physically, mentally, what sort of shape he's in? Um, well, we speak each day and, and on this trip, speaking each day, 10 minutes max, um, it's uh, heartening and lifts his spirits quite a lot because of the progress we're making across the United States. We're also meeting many of Julian's old friends like Noam Chomsky and mm. Dan Ellsberg. So all of that mounted up together is uh, raises his spirits, yeah, keeps him aloft. However, this is moving towards his 13th year at arbitrary detention, thir third year in uh, Belmarsh maximum security, one year of lockdown, unable to have visits of lawyers or family or children, or his partner. The, uh, the, um, the United Nations rapporteur on uh, torture and unusual punishment, Professor Nils Melzer of the Glasgow University, did a report uh, a year and a bit ago saying that Julian was suffering from psychological torture after he and two experts on psychological torture examined Julian in the, in the uh, prison for two to three hours. Now, that's important to keep in mind that the, the 10 years of smearing, 10 years of calumnies, 10 years of lies, 10 years of not knowing where you stand, 10 years of ceaseless prejudicial actions by the Crown Prosecuting Service and the Swedish Prosecuting Authority have taken their toll. Mm. You know, I saw something quite disturbing the other day. There was this big story that came out, I believe it was an Icelandic paper, where they basically discovered that the key witness in the extradition case was like, yeah, I lied about everything. And um, what was amazing to me is that, I mean, this is huge news, and there isn't a single U.S. outlet that has covered that story. Why do you think that is? Well, you know... Australia, the US, the UK, it was covered on the, on the continent. It dropped like a lead balloon. Um, it could be that the embarrassment is too profound. For example, there were nine FBI agents interviewing Thordeson, who is a convicted paedophile scammer, mm. convicted of stealing $50,000 from, from uh, WikiLeaks, a con man, a damaged individual. The relevant minister in the Iceland government ordered the FBI, the nine agents, after realising what they're up to, ordered them to leave Iceland. Nonetheless, they went ahead. In the judgment read by uh, Judge Baritza in the court in September, a hearing at the Old Bailey, part of the evidence was the... Uh, the testimony of Thordeson. She quoted that evidence knowing uh, that it was uh, unsound. Mm. Knowing that it was unsound, she quoted the evidence. So bringing the show trial uh, to a, well, a dreadful closure, really. 
Gabriel, um, just so people understand a little bit of the, the context here, and please jump in if I get any of this mm -hmm. wrong, but essentially the U.S.'s prosecution of Julian hinges on this idea that he helped Chelsea Manning to be able to hack a password. And so this um, witness was providing additional evidence of, yes, and Julian also helped me to hack into these documents of the Swedish government. And so that's why this was significant to this case. Um, how much does this matter that this witness has now admitted that he was making it up, that he was lying? Does this change things at all? Is it significant ultimately yeah, to the case? It's, it's huge. It's massive. Yeah. It, that whole Computer Fraud and Abuse Act charge is now, you know, it's all, it's almost meaningless. You know, the um, Chelsea Manning had access to everything, even without um, any hacking or anything like that. She already had access to the whole um, whole load of information, and she'd already given, uh, she'd already provided most of it. So this, it was the the case was the the charge was so weak that they had to find people like uh, Tordeson to sort of uh, bolster it, and and now that his um, testimony is provably false. It's just totally unraveled that that part of the charge. Were you were you surprised that no one, at least in U.S. mainstream press, picked this up at all? I, mean, we, I covered it. You covered it on our show, but we're hardly mainstream press here. And we looked um, just before you came on to to double check that no one had picked it up. And Democracy Now, Hindustan Times, silence. And otherwise, others, every, CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, New York, New York Times, Times, Washington Post. Post is it might be what you said, which is embarrassment. So. Shame on them. Shame on them. This is the most important free speech, free expression, First Amendment case, not just of our lifetimes, maybe ever. And this is what they do. They run away from it. They act like it doesn't matter. The Department of Justice in the persecution of Julian Assange over the last, uh, well, now 12 years has brought disgrace upon the United, the, uh, the United States. It's just, Equally, the show trial run by the uh, Crown Prosecuting Service of the United Kingdom has brought disgrace to the administration of justice in the United Kingdom. Rectifying this is a simple matter. Just allow the charges against Julian to fall away and him to come back to his children and his partner and us. What's your sense of where Joe Biden is on this. I don't, did I read the story where he was responsible for trying to get the plane that had Snowden on it with the, I think it was with the Bolivian president. Was it he who was directly involved in that to try to stop Snowden or am I misremembering that story? Oh, you don't sounds know? Okay. right, but I'm not. Well, either way, what, what's your sense of where Biden is on this and his administration? Have you had any communication with anybody anywhere in that orbit? And do you feel like they're, if you had two minutes to make your case to him, what would you say? Uh, Gabriel's uh, up to date, but we can break it in half and do... Uh... Go for it, yeah. Um, yeah, I think we're sort of seeing some sort of positive steps that um, the DOJ is winding back a lot of the Trump-era prosecution or, you know, attacks on journalism. Uh, you know, you can see that with the uh, subpoenas uh, that were, you know, of, of journalists' email addresses trying to get after their sources and things like that. Um, so... That, that's a promising step. Um, you know, reality winner now out um, on good behaviour is another uh, promising step. So I think, you know, there there is steps being made to address these, um, you know, the, the sort of Trump DOJ 
attacks on journalism and and we're you know very i think those with those are very positive for us that you know there could be you know the next step is going is addressing this uh julian's case which uh you know the obama obama biden doj and eric holder found that they couldn't pursue uh these espionage charges against julian because they would then have to go after the New York Times. That's right. Yeah. So we're all, all, all we wanted to see is a, a revert, like revert back to the Obama Biden DOJ decision, and uh, get rid of this Trump era uh, attack on journalism. Yeah, I just add to that that the uh, subpoena against the uh, USA Today for the IP addresses of everybody who clicked onto their site to watch a particular video, that subpoena has been withdrawn. Mm. These are um, these are good indications that the uh, current um, what's his name Merrick Garland, mm -hmm. the current. Uh, Attorney General is moving towards fair adjudication of the press and re-establishment of that wonderful attribute to the United States Constitution. Guess what it is? The First Amendment. Mm -hmm. That's right, yeah. Freedom of the press, absolutely. Um, Gabriel, tell us a little bit uh, about the tour that you're wrapping up now. I know you're headed to the airport. Quickly, after we finish this interview, um, where have you gone? What have you seen? What's the response been? Uh, it's been, you know, the response has been, you know, it's just blown us away across the country. We, I think we've spoken to thousands of people, uh, you know, as we sort of started off in Miami at the Bitcoin conference, talking to technologists and and people, of, you know, business people. Um, you know, then we moved up to New York and around the East Coast, Boston, where we picked up an award for Julian, the Sacco Vincetti Award. Um, you know, then we moved west to Columbus, Chicago, Milwaukee, and then continued to Denver. I mean, we, we've covered a lot of ground. Mm -hmm. I think we've done 24, 24 events all up. Um, and it's just this sort of upwelling of support that we've seen, people who uh, recognise that Julian's case is about uh, press freedoms, it's about the First Amendment, um, and people who really care about those parts of American democracy and their democratic rights. So that's who, who's been coming out. Uh, a lot of anti-war people as well, people who uh, recognise uh, the achievements of WikiLeaks, you know, the, these, these leaks that Julian's been prosecuted, or the publishing that Julian's been prosecuted for, uh, the Afghan war logs, the Iraq war logs, uh, Guantanamo Bay detainee files, um, the cable, the cable set. Uh, these are all things that, you know, have led to uh, basically stopped wars. And so people, people across the country recognise that and, and, and they're coming out uh, in support of Julian for that reason as well. When Chelsea Manning was freed, did you have a moment where you thought, oh, now it's definitely going to be Julian next? Well, yes, of course, um, the realisation. Uh, it's uh, Chelsea's sentence was commuted, by the way, um, and that circumstance uh, allows the Department of Justice to find something else if they want to continue to pursue mm. Chelsea. Mm. Her courage is extraordinary and, um, in my estimation, will be like Joan of Arc in the pantheon of gods of the United States for the gifts that she's brought and understanding to the people of the United States. I'd just like to add, there are four points which would blow this case out of the water. 
if there was fair adjudication and if it wasn't a show trial. Four of them. One is that the treaty between the United Kingdom and the United States for extradition disallows any extradition for political reasons. Mm -hmm. Okay, that means the espionage charges blown out of the water. The second is the surveillance by the CIA of Julian in the embassy and the suborning of AC Global to fully survey Julian 24 hours a day, even to the extent of placing microphones in the ladies' toilet or the restroom, as it's known here. Because Julian and his lawyers thought that was the only place mm. in the embassy that they could speak privately. Mm. So recording conference with the lawyers, following the lawyers down the street, suspected breaking-ins, uh, plans to poison Julian, plans to uh, kidnap Julian, all of that was revealed in the Spanish court case the surveillance of Julian by the CIA, the testimony by those at AC Global, the security company, that the testimony of those whistleblowers, they were em former employees. All of these things normally would blow the case out of the water. Last is the Thordeson revelations and the revelation that the FBI had nine FBI agents scheming to bribe or cajole a damaged individual convicted of paedophilia, fraud, stealing, impersonation into giving evidence and, uh, against Julian Assange. And that evidence being accepted, knowingly accepted by the judge in her judgment and mentioned in the judgment blow the case out of the water in any normal circumstances. The participation of the Department of Justice and the Crown Prosecuting Service has brought disgrace to the administration of law outside of the United, King, United States and disgrace to the Crown Prosecuting Service, the administration of law in the United Kingdom. I'd go further to point out that in the London, which is a world financial centre, contracts are entered into which often, not often, which occasionally come into dispute. And you would expect fair adjudication in those disputes. However, now we know that there's always a third party at the table. Mm. It is the, the Department of Justice. Mm. So this brings a sense of unreliability and consequently contracts will now be signed in Shanghai, in Frankfurt, in Paris. Very important phenomena for the, uh, the administration of, uh, in the United Kingdom to realise that they've endangered. Similarly, the uh, many contracts are written in Wall Street and sometimes require fair adjudication, but there's going to be a third party at the table. That is, uh, the United States political preferences are sitting at the table in disputes over, uh, um, well, that come into dispute over contract. Mm -hmm. And Gabriel, talk a little bit more about that, um, that political piece. 
Has it been strange to watch Julian go from when he's exposing the war crimes of the Republican Bush administration, he's a sort of hero for Democrats writ large, when he's exposing um, DNC secrets of the Democratic Party that they don't want um, revealed about their bias against Bernie Sanders, and then, you know, exposing further uh, information about Hillary Clinton that then he's blamed for essentially electing Donald Trump, then the political view of him domestically here in the U.S. shifts, even though the principle underlying all of that of revealing secrets of the powerful that are embarrassing to them that they don't want revealed is exactly the same. What has that experience been like for you to watch? Um, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, we, I, I have a very keen understanding of how, um, you know, how the media works uh, it to malign Julian. Um, I'm sure you do. So, you know, when, when we see, when we see these sort of you know, these headlines saying, uh, you know, Julian's responsible for Trump, uh, it's very easy to understand what's going on uh, in that, um, you know, the media is working to convince uh, liberal voters that an espionage, uh, an espionage Act prosecution against a publisher is okay. Um, so, so, you know, that's, that's how I look, look, look at it. And that's how we sort of, that's how I try to uh, talk to people about it and, and that, you know, this isn't about, um, you know, 2016 or the DNC emails. This is about, um, you know, this great work that Julian's done, uh, the Ch Chelsea Manning's revelations, publishing those revelations in 2010. Uh, so it doesn't, the, the actual, the 2016 leaks, there was a court case in the Southern District of New York and they've, they've been found to be new, newsworthy and, and uh, the DNC sued WikiLeaks and, and WikiLeaks won. Mm -hmm. So um, they, Julian can't be charged with, with that, but he, you know, just trying to refocus it for people um, about this is about uh, an Espionage Act prosecution against a publisher. That's, I think, you know, a lot of what, you know, what we're talking about here across the country. Um, but yeah, I'm just very keenly aware, aware of the media and how, and how they work to sort of um, hand in hand with the powerful um, to to push push their agenda, and in this case, their agenda is um, keeping my brother in in prison. Well, and I would say one other thing that's their agenda, which is to not take any responsibility on themselves for the election of Donald Trump. It's very convenient to blame. Julian Assange or Blaine, Bernie Sanders or Jill Stein voters and let themselves completely off the hook. Yeah, or Comey. I think you missed out one. Yeah, yeah that one as well. Yeah. That's right. Russia, Russian Facebook memes. All sorts of stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I'd add this and I'd add it as forcefully and firmly as I can possibly do. The revelations brought to the public of the United States and the world by Chelsea Manning and WikiLeaks and Julian Assange are of monumental crimes against humanity, against war, war crimes, against ordinary people. When there's a crime against humanity, it means that your family has been blown up, your community destroyed. Brown University study, that's Brown University in the United States, reveals that it, the, ten, the 20 years in the Middle East has created 36 million, that's 36 million people seeking refuge. Mm. That's what 
the attempt is to divert people from insisting, well, he's gone now, but people like Donald Rumsfeld face trials for war crimes. If I could just continue, there are seven countries destroyed in whole, in part, sorry, in whole or in part, in the last 20 years. That's the diversion. That's our focus. Mm. And the only way to bring equanimity back to the administration of the foreign policy of the United States is for those that diverted the foreign policy into three illegal wars in a row, removed from office and face trial for their crime. And, and we should point out, too, that um, the people who did the crimes are completely off. So at the highest level, of course, you have George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, Donald Rumsfeld, uh, but also, you know, with the exact leaks that Julian had, WikiLeaks had, and they got from Chelsea Manning, you see the killing of innocent people, journalists, and then they circle back around, they do a double tap and kill the first responders. And there's no open question about it. Those are actual crimes and those people are free. Chelsea Manning had been locked up. And of course, Julian is still undergoing what he's undergoing. And, you know, it, it, it it's inverted the way the system is supposed to work. Um, during the Trump years, obviously he was aggressively going after Julian. There was chatter though that he was considering maybe a pardon and that it was simply in classic Trump fashion, it was simply despite some of his other political enemies. Do you know if there's any truth to that? Do you have any firsthand experience in dealing with that administration or, or anything like that? Um, no, I don't. Uh, I could just say that it, my feeling was, is, that in the last two years of the Trump administration, he was desperate to save himself and his family. Mm. In the last three months of his administration, I doubt whether he had enough power to order a cup of coffee in the White House. Mm. And what makes you say that? Well, th those, the obedience to the President of the United States depends upon prestige and stature. You remove that by simply cutting off his access to Twitter or Facebook or whatever. It lowers the prestige of the President to zero so that if you can do that to the President of the United States, well, he's certainly without power. Gabriel, can you tell us where, um, what the sort of timeline for the case is? I know there was uh, one extradition hearing where the judge essentially ruled not really on the merits of the case, but out of humanitarian concerns. Um, a decision was effectively pushed off. What happens next? Yeah, so uh, at the beginning of January this year, the judge... Uh, ruled that extraditing Julian to uh, extraditing Julian to the U.S. would be tantamount to a death sentence. Basically, mm. um, she upheld basically the entire U.S. case, um, all the other points from the U.S. Uh, DOJ, uh, including Tortison's false testimony. Mm. Um, and then a few days later, uh, so Julian won, and then a few days later he was refused bail. 
um, the US DOJ uh, indicated they would appeal immediately. And then... Um, and just to be clear, that's under the Biden administration that uh, the decision so was the, made to the appeal. The indication to appeal was made under the Trump administration and okay. then, you know, and then... Continued. Sort of, yeah, continued um, under the Biden administration after January 20th. So now there is um, the, a single high court judge will hear, will decide whether to hear the appeal or not. And we expected that to happen, I think, almost a month ago now. And it's just, you know, there is no court date set. There's no, no, you know, it's just uh, could be any time that we hear whether there will be an appeal heard or not. Um, so, you know, that's sort of six months, six months that since Julian's won his case, he's still you know, in this maximum security prison, uh, not knowing, you know, not knowing, um, you know, when he'll get out or when there'll be an appeal or, or anything like that. So why is he being held in a maximum security prison? What does that day-to-day -day life look like? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a prison where there's the, you know, most violent criminals in the UK. Um, and Julian's, you know, he hasn't, there's no, he's an innocent man. Essentially he's a Roman prisoner. He's, uh, in his cell most of the time during the day. Uh, the prison's been on a on a lengthy lockdown. I, I saw him in October last year and since then he, his first visit was only last week. So that's eight months where he hasn't been able to see his children, his family. Mm. Um, so it is like absolutely bleak for him uh, in that prison. Uh, you know, going to visit him, you notice a lot of the other prisoners and families they visit and they're planning like, oh, you know, at the end of your sentence, we can have a party or we can do, you know, some, you know, like they're all planning when they get out, but Julian has no sentence. He's in there, he's a remand prisoner. Um, so, you know, and that's coming up on three years. So that's one difference that is really, uh, you really feel when, as a family member, that, that you're not able to, um, you know, make a plan for the future. Mm. Who do you blame primarily? I know that's a difficult question to answer, but from my perspective, it looks like, it does look like there's, you know, a deep state. It does look like the people who are in power from administration to administration, whether it's the FBI or the CIA or whoever, people who are there permanently and not subject to the whims of elections, it seems like they're really running the show. So is that where all the blame goes or does it go with the presidents or is it for everybody in the whole system? Um, I, I don't tend to... I don't tend to blame one person or, or one group or or another. I, I don't think uh, I feel that way. I mean, um, we just, I just sort of, you know, since I've been more active with Julian's campaign, it's more focusing on, you know, how, how can we get people to uh, come together and, and Cooperate. Really, yeah, stand up, you know, for, for their rights, basically. Um, that, that's been sort of more, more of our focus. I think, you know, whoever these institutions are or, 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 or interests or, or whatever you want to call them, uh, you know, if, if there is a mass movement or mm. if there is, you know, immense media pressure, uh, then, then they will have to stop doing what they're doing. Is support very bipartisan, would you say, for Julian? I think so, yeah. On our, on our trip here, we've yes. done, mm -hmm. you know, so, you know, one thing that you know, Amy Goodman and Tucker Carlson both support Right, yeah. Julian. Mm -hmm. So the, I don't can't think of any other issue they agree on, right? So <laughs> I think there is, uh, this is an issue, the First Amendment and free press is, is a, you know, it's an umbrella issue. It's a bipartisan issue. Um, so it's just getting those people together um, and getting them to forget about their 
the other things they disagree on um, and, and sort of work together on something that they can, you know, make a difference and make a difference on. It's the preservation of the First Amendment and the free press. It's essential and gathers all parties together under that umbrella. Yeah. And can you talk about what are the consequences? Let's say that Julian's extradited. Let's say he's prosecuted. He's, he's found guilty um, and convicted here in the U.S., what are the consequences for this country? What are the consequences for journalists? Oh, well, the oppression of journalism and the intimidation of journalists has already begun because no journalist receiving national security information of any sort of classification, mild or top secret, will be want to take on 10 years of fighting for your mm. freedom, mm. having a... Um, lawyers in five jurisdictions and spending raising millions of dollars worldwide and a hundred thousand people advocating for your releases just nobody's going to do it right. nobody so it's already here however if the people if the voice of the people is understood and the administration accepts its responsibility to the first to the first amendment above all other interests then that will bring renewal to journalism and journalists will again be able to provide actually the amendment the first amendment contains within it embraces within it uh, a a promise. That promise is that freedom comes through knowledge. And that's uh, an understanding that best be maintained because the quality of the polity depends upon the knowledge that exists in the polity. And governments having good policy depends upon the knowledge that's existing in the poli in the polity as to how about how to go about forming good policy through conversations within communities and families mm -hmm. very very vital to the continuance of of fair governance of any community it's foundational yeah um so when I first interviewed Glenn Greenwald I asked him a very naive question and this was about Edward Snowden I said He's right on the merits, so why wouldn't he, you know, come back and just win his case, you know? And I, very naive question in retrospect, but at the time I thought it was a good question. And basically what Glenn told me is that um, because of, I think, the Espionage Act, Snowden was not allowed to make a public good defense. He can't say the reason why I'm releasing this information is because it's in the public interest to know this stuff. He was just like muzzled in court from being able to say that, which obviously if you can't say that, then what case do you have? <laughs> you know, the government can run roughshod over you. Um, is Julian effectively in the same boat as that? Is he not allowed to make a public good defense if he were to be extradited to the US? Yeah, I think under the Espionage Act, yeah, that's right. Um, there, there was a bill put forward by Rob, Ron Wyden and, and Ro Khanna to an Espionage Act reform bill, mm. uh, which would allow a public interest a public interest defence in espionage cases. But yeah, Julian is essentially, you know, he's, he's, he's a bit different than Snowden because he's a publisher. Right. Um, you know, Espionage Act has been traditionally used against uh, leakers of information right. since Daniel Ellsberg. Uh, Daniel Hale is another very recent one. Drone, he was yes. a drone uh, leaker. 
Um, but yeah, Julian's case is a little bit different in that it's he's he's uh, you know prosecuted for he's been journalism yeah for doing yeah, journalism for, for publishing yeah two, right. two of the charges are actually for publishing like publishing the information wow so uh, there's there's a big point of difference there but yeah I think a public interest defence of the Espionage Act you know it, it's this 1917 law that was you know put into place uh, you know it, you know just for, for reasons of the first, you know, during the First World War. So, um, you know, it's this, it's a bit obsolete at the moment and it's been gamed in this way now, um, you know, to sort of just go after, go after basically targets of mm. people who, who um, you know, like leakers or now publishers. So, um, yeah, I think it'd be good to reform that law. I mean, Rokana and Ron White and tried to, but um, yeah, let's see if that comes up again. Mm. I'd add that Julian, is, as you know, is an Australian citizen and uh, it's probably not possible to charge an Australian citizen with espionage. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Fair point. Mm. Um, John, you know, there have been a lot of media caricatures of Julian, that he's anti-American, that he hates Hillary Clinton, that he's, you know, was mean and not nice while he was staying at the Ecuadorian embassy, that he was unsanitary. Just tell us a little bit about, you know, as his father, who is Julian? What does he believe? What were the core principles that led him to found WikiLeaks to start with? Julian is sort of, uh, you know, libertarian, towards libertarian. Um, He loves California and his formation with the cypherpunks, uh, all of whom now are you know, billionaires or well-known like Richard Stallman. Um, that, that is his uh, formative, uh, let's see, that is the ground that he rests on. Mm. Uh, the ability that, uh, the understanding that exists in this community that knowledge brings freedom. Um, and as a consequence, he put up a library on the, internet where you can go and examine the cables, for example, and become as knowledgeable as anybody who uh, works in the State Department because that knowledge can bring you freedom, freedom of understanding what uh, the foreign policy of the United States is and those who are involved in formulating it and those who are involved in enforcing it. So that's what he's like, really a Californian, really who lives in Australia, you know. So um, let's talk a little bit about another one of the criticisms uh, of Julian is there's a lot of claims made about his sources. Like, oh, maybe he's getting it from the Russian government and so he's leaking on the U.S. and just trying to do damage to the U.S. Um, The first question is, do you have any knowledge on his sources? And then the second question is, does that even really matter if the stuff that's being exposed should be exposed? For me, I have no uh, nothing to do with WikiLeaks whatsoever. I, I am Julian Assange's father and I only embarked upon this to get him out of the troubles that he's in. None, nothing to do with WikiLeaks. As for sources, uh, the protection of sources that Julian and WikiLeaks have embarked upon is indelible, bulletproof, perfect. Mm. Even to the extent 
of maybe causing him, Julian, great discomfort. Nobody is going to know who a source to WikiLeaks is, full stop. The integrity that that exhibits and continues to be exhibited also exists in the files that WikiLeaks hold. Perfect record, integrity top to bottom. And that answers both of your questions. Gabriel may have a little bit to add. Um, I just, yeah, I think, you know, WikiLeaks' archive is, is covers, uh, you know, every country in the world. So, I mean, some of its biggest leaks have been uh, US, you know, from the US, but the US has the most secrets. So, right, yeah. I think proportionally you'll find that WikiLeaks, uh, you know, they have, they have Syrian emails from Bashar yep. al-Assad. Mm. They have all sorts of stuff. So, um, I think, you know, it really has to be looked at it like that. It's not focused on any one uh, particular country. That's right. um, the early, in the early days, Julian even said that, you know, China was their biggest, uh, that's where most of the intrusion type attacks came from, from WikiLeaks. Mm. Mm. So, um, you know, to this idea that it's uh, US focus, I think is, you know, it's a bit of a red yeah. herring. And yeah. let me also say that it's, it's interesting you say that because um, I remember distinctly when everybody was going after him because he leaked on the DNC in 2016. My, one of my main defenses of him was, I guarantee you, if he had RNC emails, he would have leaked them too. So yeah, he leaks it on. He leaks on the powerful. He yeah, exposes Macron, stuff that he, should be exposed. Yeah, he had leaked a bunch of Macron emails as well. So I mean, there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's a very U.S. centric view. We only notice the ones that that's are about right. the yeah. U.S. We're like, he doesn't right. even yep. do anything with the rest of the world. <laughs> Meanwhile, that's all exactly out there, easily available. I could make another, which I think is interesting, is that also uh, the publications concerning environmentalism. Mm. So uh, Trafigura, which is a company responsible for disposing of e-waste, loaded up ships with that e-waste and dumped it off the east coast of Africa, ruining and poisoning the waters of the that uh, the local the coastal communities. Uh, drew their sustenance from from fishing. 144 died. Um, mm. That was able to be corrected. So the environmental um, aspect of WikiLeaks is not much discovered, but there's considerable amount of uh, material there on environment as well. Did Julian, when he founded WikiLeaks, did he expect to be pursued and prosecuted and attacked by some of the most powerful people on the planet? Uh, I don't know. We chatted about it, but just uh, not, we chatted about Julian told me that he's going to establish a wiki. <laughs> well, I didn't know what it meant, but I <laughs> mouth shut. You know, I didn't want to look like a silly. <laughs> and uh, he explained that, but there was never, with me, maybe with Gabriel, but there's never discussion of fears. So I want to um, I want to reiterate the same question from earlier. Assuming that Joe Biden is watching this, which is quite an assumption, but assuming he's watching this, um, you have two minutes of his time to make your strongest case uh, for Julian to get a full pardon. What would you say, both of you? Um, I think you know with this you know under so under Trump there was this sort of disengagement from the outside world. There was and and Joe Biden's really pushed. Uh, you know, and the State Department, they're, you know, they're set, they've pushed this uh, 
that they're re-engaging with the world now. Um, so, you know, with Julian's case, we have all this support. Uh, you know, there's parliamentary groups all through Europe, um, you know, Spain, UK, there's 20, 24 parliamentarians in the UK, um, all supporting the, this case uh, be dropped. Um, you know, there, there's this other phenomenon that's happening at the moment where, um, you know, uh, places that US, the US State Department are trying to encourage uh, to be more transparent, um, to, to promote human rights in places like China and Russia. Um, they're, they're now saying, what about Assange? Like the foreign affairs spokesperson in, in China, you know, they were confronted about their human rights and their press freedoms. They said, how, you know, by the State Department, and they said, well, what, what about Assange? You have a publisher locked up. Uh, in the UK, Russian ambassador to the UK confronted about Navalny, said, well, you know, you've got down the road, you've got a publisher in jail. Um, Aliyev, the Azerbaijani, mm -hmm. um, yep. uh, Azerbaijani, you know, whatever you yep. want to call him, um, you know, confronted about his uh, record on press freedoms. He said, well, you can't, you can't talk to me. You've got Assange locked up. That was so, incredible, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I think, you know, for, for um, the State Department and this administration to really uh, re-establish this sort of uh, moral high ground that it, that it can um, that it can now you know approach these countries with freeing Assange is is one easy way to do that and takes this big roadblock out from whenever they have discussions with uh, with other states. What would you say, John? Oh, well, you know, it would only take me thirty seconds. I mean, I would just say to the president that you are aware, your advisors have made aware of what a global mess that this is. It embraces all of your allies in the problem. The way to solve it is to uh, drop these charges. That'll solve it for you. Diplomatically, of course, it reverberate around the world and people again would look to the United States, as Gabrielle has just said, for the guidance that the First Amendment gives us all. And for the people who are watching or listening to this interview, what can they do, John, um, to help lift up this case, to, to help make the Biden administration, uh, convince the Biden administration that these charges should absolutely be dropped. What are you asking people to do? Well, first thing they had best do is continue to listen to Crystal and Saga because <laughs> the matter's covered thoroughly. <laughs> and the, the, after that, discuss it with your family and friends and then uh, just ring the Department of Justice or send them a letter saying that this matter must be attended to. There's a technique that uh, Gab the mother of Gabrielle's daughter developed in Australia, which is taking up a limited uh, petition. And that petition only goes to those people in your district. You might get 200, you might get 50, and you, or you might get 400, and you submit that to your representative. Mm. That's all. Only within the district and only those in your district. And that way, that influences because the responsibility, uh, part of the responsibility of a cross congressman is to listen to and be aware of the, the necessities of, that, uh, he, that his constituents bring to him.
Gentlemen, uh, we know you have a flight to catch. We could not be more grateful for your time. Um, and I know our audience is going to really appreciate everything that you had to say. So thank you so, so much for taking the time out to be with us today. Thank you. So that was Gabriel Shipton, John Shipton, father and brother of Julian Assange. And I got to say, Kyle, like we talk about a lot of medium, media failures and hypocrisy. And if you want to understand what a sham they are and what they actually stand for, their total silence on this case is insane. I mean, these are the same people who went out there during Trump and rightfully condemned his attacks on press's enemy of the state and all of that. But when it comes to the most important case in the world for press freedom, nothing to say. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm pissed off. I'm really, really pissed off because they shouldn't have to come to outlets like ours to get their message out. Mm -hmm. I'm a guy who has a YouTube channel. I have a YouTube channel. It's a regular occurrence. On, on like a weekly basis, I fuck around and make fart noises on my channel. Like I'm 25% comedian, 75% asshole commentator who just, you know, tells everybody what I think. The fact that they can't get a fair hearing on CNN, on MSNBC, on Fox News, they can't get the Washington Post or the New York Times or anybody else to talk to them or even just represent Julian's side of this fairly is the most damning indictment of the media I've ever seen in my life. It's absolutely pathetic. And, you know, we gave them, hey, if you if Biden was listening, what, what would you say to them? Well, if Biden was listening to us, which I know he's not, but what I would tell him is very simple. We're told in this country that we believe in democracy and human rights and freedom and rule of law and the Constitution. It's hammered in our heads from when we're kids. This is stuff that he says all the time in speeches. Democrats say it all the time in speeches. Republicans say it all the time in speeches. All this flowery rhetoric where we're sucking ourselves off and acting like, you know, we're so great. We're so high and mighty. American, America is the exceptional nation. Abide by what you say you believe in. Abide by what you say you believe in. And this isn't a difficult case. I think that's the reason why I'm so pissed off is nobody in mainstream media will listen to them. And it's not even a difficult case. The media under Trump, they would cry and whine and bitch and moan when Trump would do a press conference and he would make fun of Jim Acosta. And, oh, the free press is under assault. Oh, my God. The president made fun of Jim Acosta. The, this pompous prick. Wow. One pompous prick made fun of another pompous prick. And somehow this is national news. This dominates multiple news cycles. But you have somebody who exposed war crimes. War, that's all he did. He exposed war crimes. He showed journalists getting killed and then the first responders getting killed. All he did was leak that information. He didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. He just said, hey, this happened with your money in your name, American taxpayers. Look at this. And because of that, he's a fucking pariah. He's a pariah and he's been locked up. He's being psychologically tortured. He's being physically tortured. This is a hero. And you know what? If Biden doesn't do the right thing, just like with Trump, they might be in their little establishment bubble. They don't even realize what they're doing. Right. But history is going to judge you. History is going to judge you. Today, we look back at Vietnam 
and Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers. We learned about how U.S. soldiers were using napalm and Agent Orange and destroying these innocent villages. These landless peasants were getting massacred. And you know what? When they released that back then, it was a fucking scandal and it was a debate and they threw the book at everybody who released mm -hmm. it. Today, we look back and we go, what the fuck were we thinking? These are heroes. We all agree now that they're heroes because it's obvious. And here we have a situation, whether it's Julian Assange, it was Chelsea Manning, it's Edward Snowden. These are whistleblowers, these are heroes. In the case of Julian Assange, he's a journalist. He's saying, here, here's a fact of what happened in the world. And they can't get covered. Nobody's talking about it. Nobody in mainstream media is talking about it. And I haven't heard anything from Joe Biden, Mr. I'm gonna bring decency back to the White House. Fuck off. Well, and Gabriel's very, diplomatic with regards to when you asked him about the Biden administration. And I definitely understand that because Julian's fate is in his hands, right? So he doesn't want to ostracize him. But, you know, under the Obama administration, on the one hand, they declined to prosecute Julian because they couldn't figure out how to do it and not also implicate the New York Times specifically, but basically every journalistic outlet. On the other hand, I mean, Biden indicated he was a high-tech terrorist. So everybody in power always hated this guy. Obama, the Obama DOJ wanted very much to go after him. They just couldn't figure out the legal case to make that wouldn't criminalize all of journalism effectively. Well, Trump and Bill Barr, Bill Barr in particular, they didn't have those kind of qualms. So they come up with this, you know, end round way of charging him and going after him. So the other thing for Biden, you know, given that everybody's brains are rotten by rotted by partisanship and sectarianism is like, you're really going to continue this Trump prosecution, like this attack on the press that was launched by Donald Trump and his administration. The Obama administration had it right. You cannot go after Julian Assange without criminalizing all of journalism. So return to that Obama era principle. And Lord knows Obama was not great on freedom of the press. But on this case, go back to Obama's principle. The, uh, the DOJ under Obama realized that this was a case of press freedom and they could not touch him. Go back to that. The only time they make a big deal of this stuff is when it's leaked and it's embarrassing or it's an indictment of the powerful. That's the only time that it's a scandal. Yeah. Every single day there are leaks and the press runs with it. And technically this violates the law, but nobody cares because it's making people in power look good. Here, somebody's exposing war crimes and he's getting the book thrown at him. And to the media, I'll say this, you fucking idiots. Do you not understand what a precedent is? Do you not understand what happens if Julian Assange gets extradited to the U.S. and Julian Assange goes down with some sham bullshit trial? Do you not understand that that is the death of journalism? It's the death of it. You will not be able to be critical of people in power. You, you're not allowed to be critical because they'll find some way to say, that's illegal, shouldn't have said the thing that you were gonna say. So all of the things we say we care about, it's in this story, everything. Democracy, freedom, human rights, the constitution, the first amendment, free press, free expression, it's all on the line. And the fact that, again, I'm just frustrated because, I mean, these they did a panel, lovely panel with Cornell West last night. Mm -hmm. You know, he said, who, it was 
Tucker was one that was sympathetic, and then there was one other, the, oh, Amy Goodman, Amy Goodman. of Democracy mm -hmm. Now. That's it. That's yeah. it. That's all we got. And the other, uh, you know, independent left media outlets, that's it. Yeah. That's it. It's, it's a fucking scandal. It's a scandal. And it's embarrassing. It's not to say we're so good. It's to say they're so fucking bad. Because it's obvious. And it says everything about the nation that Donald Rumsfeld was able to die a free man and Julian Assange is in a cage. It says everything that, you know, those individual service members who um, murdered those civilians and those journalists laughed about it too, by the way, and and went back and not only the first responders, but there were children in that van that were shot and injured as well. They're all free. They faced no no punishment, no accountability, nothing. And Julian Assange, the person who exposed that crime, is the one in a cage. If that's not an indictment on American society, I don't know what is. It is a grave injustice and one that is easily fixed, easily fixed. Now, it is interesting, and I thought what John said was really important, that in some ways a lot of the damage is already done because they made an example of Julian. They wanted anyone who was thinking about publishing secrets that would expose or embarrass the nation's elites. They wanted them to know that they're going to suffer, that they're going to pay a price for it. And the attacks on Julian and what is done to his um, health, medical and uh, mental health are, you know, outrageous already. So in a lot of ways, that damage has already been done. But Joe Biden can decide any day he wants that this prosecution is bullshit, that it's some Bill Barr, Donald Trump attack on the press nonsense. He can drop the charges and that would be the end of it. Give him a full pardon, drop the charges, give him a full pardon, do the same thing with Edward Snowden. If you don't do it, I mean, again, what does it matter what I say? History is going to be the judge. And Biden or Trump, you know, they think they're building these great legacies. Are you fucking kidding me? Your standard establishment, you know, all you do is uphold the establishment and the status quo. There's nothing that you're doing that is going to stay in the history books. Nothing. All the stuff like, oh, Biden's the next FDR. He did one bill with a one-time check. He's the next FDR. If you actually want to, now I'm just, uh, you know, appealing to these people's narcissism. <laughs> if you want to build a legacy, do some shit that matters. Free Julian Assange, drop the charges, pardon him. And guess what? You might take some shit now from the establishment, right? From the from the press. If he were to do that, they'd probably, you know. No, I think they'd they'd pat him on the back if he did it. It would be interesting they, to see if they they'd would be split or they'd pat him on the back all the time. Yeah, true. But you know, he might think because again, all the establishment group think now is don't touch that at all, right? But well, and how many Hillary friends and aides and whatever are in his circle are in the administration? Who I mean, they hate Julian Assange with a burning passion. So, you know, part of what he may be weighing is like the personal implications of which is this just, person or that uh, person it just in says my administration. Everything about that. the kind of people that we're dealing with here. Mm -hmm. Nothing's from principle, nothing's about morality, right. nothing's about the things they say they believe in, like democracy and the constitution. It's all shit like that. So be fucking useful for once in your life. God damn it. So, not like Joe Biden, crime bill, Joe Biden, bankruptcy bill, Joe Biden, Patriot Act, Joe Biden, Iraq war, Joe Biden for fucking once. Do the right thing with this. Yep. It's not hard. This is a clear case. 
It's a clear case. All the things they say against Julian are nonsense, are nonsense. Just drop the charges, pardon them, let's be done with this. I mean, again, it's amazing as you watch this and you realize, do you not, are you, do you not know that in 50 fucking years people will be like, you're the biggest fucking idiots in the world for having this happen, this poor soul being persecuted? Do you not see that? Do they genuinely not see that? That like, this is how history is gonna judge it? And the answer is they don't see it. Yeah. They don't see it. Because on top of being unprincipled goons, they're also fucking idiots. I think that pretty much sums it up. I think so, yes. Thank you guys um, for tuning in. Thank you for listening to that extraordinary interview. Please, please, please do the things that John and Gabriel said. Put pressure, raise awareness, turn up the temperature on this because the thing that the Biden administration wants most is for no one to say a word about the blatant hypocrisy involved in this case. So do not let that happen. And, and not just that. They, they said, uh, you know, their strategy was do it at the smaller level. Yeah, do, your yes. congressional district Congressional level. district, call your congressperson. I'm going to say, don't, call your congressperson, yes, do exactly what they said. Also, call the fucking White House. Let's flood the White House. Why not? Why not, right? If we can get 100,000 people to call the White House, you think maybe they'll be, whoa, 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 what the fuck's going on here, right? I'm, I mean, I'm sure... 90% of the stuff does not get to Biden's desk if you call the White House. Right. But if you get 100,000 calls about Julian Assange, maybe at least then we'll get, a, you know, some coverage in the media. They'll be like, shit, there's 100,000 people that just called. Right. So let's let's use let's use this power that we have, the limited power we have with this show for good. Use, you know, whatever power you guys have, even if it's just a phone call and a message, use it for good. Let's flood that White House line. Let's demand that he be pardoned and the charges be dropped because this is inexcusable and we can't sit idly by while something like this goes on. So call, you know, you know what? Fuck it. We'll leave the number on yeah. the screen right now. How about that? We'll put the number on the screen right now. Raise hell however you can, guys. Don't let this uh, crime that the administration is prosecuting against Julian Assange. Don't let them slide for this. We'll have another episode for you next week. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Enjoy the holiday weekend. We'll see you soon.